before I, I speak, I know the time is getting a little late, but um, Sister Bell told me that she felt impressed to tell of her experience there at Hengelow, and I thought that it would be terrible if we didn't give her that opportunity. Sister Bell, come forward. One of the folk that was there representing Wales at Hengelow. Well, I felt I had to say something because I was rebaptized there, and I think it was the happiest day of my whole life. And I could really say amen to all the vows because I was baptized 29 years ago and, and I was young and um, I hadn't experienced um, the things that I've experienced since. And, and I also went away from the Lord for a number of years. So I really felt that I had to be baptized. And I could really say amen to each of the vows because the Lord had shown me each one in my life and, and I had been practicing these vows and so it was wonderful to hear them and know that that I knew what they were all about and it was just like a taste of heaven um, in Hengelo I think it was the fellowship it was wonderful to meet all these different people from all different parts of the world and all feeling as one and Pastor Russell Standish who baptised us I, he didn't come till Thursday so he didn't really get to know all of us very well, but he seemed to know so much to say about each one of us before we were baptised. I had met him before, so he knew a little about me, but he just was able to say so much. He remembered something about each one of us, and we thought that was wonderful. And also, I realised afterwards that when we were baptised, no music was being played at all, and yet the Holy Spirit was there more than ever before. I've never felt the Holy Spirit in a meeting like it before. And the morning meeting was wonderful. The, the communion service was just... Well, we, we didn't think of time. It, the time just went on. And um, the ladies went over into the house and we had to have about four sessions of feet washing. And um, we washed people's feet that... You know, we couldn't speak their language, but you know, we all were as one. And after the baptism, it was getting late then, and it was tea time, but people didn't bother to go and get their tea. They all came, it must have been hundreds, it took about an hour, they all came and shook hands with us. And I was going to say to some of them who spoke in Germany, that German, that I couldn't understand them, and I thought, no, I'm not going to say anything. It was all coming from their heart, and they were pointing to their heart and my heart and pointing up above. And tears were streaming down their faces and they gave us such warm handshakes. And it was really wonderful. And I've just been walking on air since. It just I gave myself completely to the Lord about two years ago. And to have all my past sins washed away now. It, I know they were forgiven, but I felt I had to be baptised. And it was really wonderful. And... If they have one next year, I'm definitely going to go. And I encourage you all, if there's another meeting, to go because it'll be a foretaste of heaven. Amen. I think this is the time to start saving, isn't it? <laughs> For that.
Well, during the uh, Sabbath hours, I'm going to take up what I believe is a very timely message. I want you to come over to the 24th chapter of Matthew. And I want us to share together the words of our Lord. This experience is well known to us all. You remember that the disciples were terribly burdened and concerned when Jesus had told them that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and that magnificent temple was going to be laid low there. And they couldn't understand how that could possibly happen unless it was the end of the world. And so they came to Jesus and said, When shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? I'm going to talk about the first response of Jesus. I could spend a lot of time here this morning talking about the remarkable set of signs that are given. I'm so thankful the disciples asked Jesus that question. And I'm so thankful that three of the gospel writers have recorded what Jesus said in response to that question. For we have a bountiful supply of the evidence of the soon coming of Jesus as a result of Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. But I am especially concerned about the first response of Jesus in verse 4. Take heed... That no man deceive you. We often overlook that response. It's so easy to talk about the gospel going to all the world. The signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Persecution and other areas. The fact that there will be wars and rumours of wars. But Jesus' first response to the question... When shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming in the end of the world? The first answer was take heed that no man deceive you. Why did Jesus start there? I believe it's because he realized that the greatest sign of his coming would be the vast array of deceptions that would be presented by Satan to deceive and to capture and to confuse the minds of those who Jesus wants to save. Oh, I tell you today, Satan's got so many deceptions. But God only has one truth. He's only ever had one truth. Truth does not change. It's not eclectic. It's not pluralistic. Truth is truth. God cannot lie. God is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Satan is the father of lies. I'm not going to get very far this morning in what I'm going to deal with, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to deal with, and that's one deception that is coming strongly into our church today. And many very faithful Adventists are being caught up with this deception. I'm talking about the deception of time setting.
Time setting for the pouring out of the latter rain, time setting for the close of probation, time setting for the return of Jesus, but in some way or another, time setting. And what I say here today will not be meant to be an attack on those who are involved in time setting, but to go through gently and carefully with you what the counsel of the Lord is. What does God say? <coughs> about time setting. Let take heed that no man deceive you. You'll notice in verse twenty four, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now last night we discussed the fact that Satan's war is not against the church as a whole. That is very clear from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ or the spirit of prophecy. Satan is not attacking the rest of the church because they're already part of those who are lost unless the grace of God comes upon them. Only the remnant, this tiny remnant that is spoken about, this remnant that is weak and feeble, which Isaiah tells us about, that remnant alone is Satan assaulting. And he's made war. And for 6,000 years, the nefarious mind of Satan has been devising and testing all sorts of deceptions so that if possible, he can actually derail the membership of this church. And with great sorrow, I have to say, he's been remarkably successful. But with great joy, I have to announce he hasn't been totally successful. And it seems to me that my responsibility as a minister of the gospel is to continually help our people to see these deceptions one after the other as they come against us. And all today I'm going to be dealing with this issue, the history of it, what the counsel of God was, how the servant of the Lord responded to these deceptions. As they came. Because it only matters what God has said. You can have your opinion and I can have my opinion. But they're worthless unless they are consistent with God's written instruction. Now remember this. That the battle is a very simple battle that is taking place in this world. You remember in the garden. Well let's go over to the garden of Eden. We must not hasten on too fast so that we lose the use of God's word. In the third chapter of Genesis, we have a very clear picture that all of us must keep in mind. Here is the serpent in that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that Adam and Eve were told that they must not eat of the fruit thereof. And you'll notice that Satan didn't come out and say, make a statement he asked a question, an innocent question, or was it? Verse 1, 
Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now Satan full well knew what God had said. We don't know the tone of voice with which the serpent spake. Did he speak in a kind, musical voice as if he genuinely wanted to know? Did he speak with a little bit of cynicism in his voice? Was he downright sarcastic? You know, any statement like this could have a different tone of voice to it that would change the whole meaning, wouldn't it? But whatever he said, we've got to be to recognize that Eve defended God. In fact, she got almost carried away with the defense of God. You'll notice, and the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, God had not said, lest ye touch it. However, it would have been wise not to touch it. Because if she had not touched it, she would not have eaten it. I will never, by the grace of God, know whether I would have become an alcoholic. I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not interested in knowing the answer to that. I would have had to take the first drink. Now, if you never take the first drink, you'll never become an alcoholic. If you just don't touch it, then you're sure not to fall into that trap. And if Eve had only followed what she had said, it was good counsel, the wisest counsel. If you don't touch it, you'll never eat it. If you don't hold a glass of beer in your hand, you'll never drink it. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's true of any kind of sin. But you notice Eve was right on God's side. She's giving a strong answer. Verse 4, it doesn't take long for the scene to change, does it? And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now if he'd stopped there, he may have not got very far with Eve. But you will notice that uh, he gave a reason. He placed a doubt in the mind of Eve as to the motives of God. Now he was practiced at doing this. That's what he did up in heaven with the angels. He questioned the justice and the love of God to the angels until they too began to doubt whether God was all loving and all just. And here it is. Verse 5 tells you the doubt that he placed in her mind. She'd never had a doubt about God before. Never. And here was the first doubt. Now, the doubt was not sin. It wasn't her fault that Satan said this. 
but she allowed it to ferment in her mind. And she started to lose confidence in the word of God. Listen to it. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Oh yes, God said no need of this tree. Got any idea why he said it? Let me explain it to you. God's a little nervous about what will happen if you eat that tree. You're going to be like him if you eat that tree. And you're going to know good and evil. Well, he was partly right, wasn't he? She knew a lot more about evil after she'd eaten of that tree than she ever did beforehand. It was never in God's plan that mankind should ever know anything about evil. God did not want you or me to know anything about evil. He wanted us to have a clear mind, pure, holy, perfect in every thought. What a tragedy that we've had to have our minds bombarded with evil. But by the grace of God, he can even cleanse us from that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to? From what? Oh, unrighteousness. But I would have rather not had to go through it. What about you? That was God's plan. That was his purpose. But God allowed the loyalty of Adam and Eve to be tested. We're not loyal unless it's tested. That's why God allows you and he allows me to be tested. How can we ever prove or say that we're loyal to God unless we're being tested? And each one of us has and is and will be tested. But remember this, that every test that comes, God is able to give the victory if we are surrendered to him. He will not suffer us to be tempted. That means tested. Above that we are able. But will with the temptation also make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. First Corinthians 10.13 And here was a simple test. The word of God or the word of Satan. The word of the one who is the truth. The word of the one who cannot lie. And the word of the one who is the father of lies. That's a pretty easy choice, isn't it? You couldn't make a mistake, could you? But before we condemn Adam and Eve, remember that's a test that every one of us has to pass. Same test. Maybe different circumstances, but same test. And those who accept implicitly and by the faith of Jesus the word of God will not fail in the day of test and trial ahead. Faith is a victory that overcometh what? Yes, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, 4. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith, the earth? Now the answer is a resounding yes, for 
Revelation 14, 12 tells us, here, are, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that and have the... Well, at least it just doesn't say have, but it includes that. Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So there will be faith amongst his remnant. Paul tells us that which is not of faith is sin. Unless we live by the faith of Jesus, we will not live a life of victory. There must be total confidence in God's word. When he speaks, we must follow. Don't ask why. Sometimes God will tell us, sometimes he won't, but we know it's the right way to go. And men and women today are being called in this final generation to have the faith of Jesus, to walk by faith. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my pathway. Oh, brethren and sisters, the scripture is full of the power of the word. And at the end of time, there will be two groups of people, those who have accepted the word of God and those who have accepted the word of Satan. Take heed that no man deceive you. Men inspired by Satan deceive. Or they may be of magnificent appearance. They may be of wonderful oratory. They may be of a charismatic personality. They may appear to be so loving and so wonderful, but if it is contrary to the written word that God has given to his people, we must ignore it, we must shun it, we must reject it like the plague. For the only word that can stand true is the word of God. I want you to come over to 1 Timothy chapter five, 4. 1 Timothy 4. Again, uh, the words here are a repetition almost of what Jesus said. Verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of who? If you don't accept the doctrines of God, you are accepting the doctrines of devils. No choice other than those two choices. You think of it. Everything depends upon our relationship to the Word of God. Everything. The way our loyalty. If we do not accept the Word of God, our loyalty is with Satan. If we do not hold firm to the doctrines of God, we're holding firm to the doctrines of Satan. If we do not walk in the ways of Jesus, we're walking in the ways of Satan. There cannot be three, four, five, six, or ten different ways. I hear people saying there are three or four different groups in the Adventist church today. 
Well, there could be a thousand different groups in the Adventist church today. I wouldn't know how many groups we can divide them into. But remember, there is only one group, one um, section of God's church that are following the word of God. Every other group, no matter how many there are, are following Satan because he's pluralistic. He doesn't mind whether you accept this deception or this deception or this one. It's like a smorgasbord. Choose your deception. And Satan is pleased. And you will pay him at the end. Like you would if you went to a smorgasbord. That's how it is, brethren and sisters. But with God, the truth is undeviating. It is pure. It is perfect. It is unchallengeable. And those who are walking by the word of God can never find themselves in a position where they are not in harmony with the God of heaven. It is the issue of the word that's at stake. The very character of God is enshrined in his word. The very principles of God are found within his word, brethren and sisters, and there is no other way around it. And the fact that there are all sorts of winds of doctrine in the church today has nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that God has a variant concept of the pathway to heaven. This idea that all roads lead to heaven is the greatest deception that Satan can bring. Let's read about it in Ephesians chapter 4, in that unity chapter. (laughs) You remember it starts in verse 11 with, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors (laughs) and teachers. I want to ask here this morning, where do you belong in this list? Individually, are you an apostle? Are you a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher? God's calling you to be somewhere in that list. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. This work is not going to be finished primarily by ministers. It's going to be finished primarily by laymen and women. How foolish it would be if we thought that a minister, one minister that might have 200, 300 or whatever members, and he's going to do it all while the laity sit in the pews? You know, I, I, this is one of the things that always um, confuses my mind. So many pastors today, they're thinking of new ideas and gimmicks to get people back into the pews of the church. And of course, Satan is having a harvest. My greater burden is to get the people out of the pews into the ministry, working for God and sharing this wonderful message. This project here, brethren and sisters, I'm just excited about it. I mean, is it possible for 10,000 pounds, only 10,000 pounds, that we could have a card in every home? In Great Britain, that's bargain basement price if ever you wanted it. It's less than that. I tell you, I don't believe that we couldn't raise that 10,000 pound here in this room today if we really want to sacrifice for this project. 
I'm excited to see the, the, the widening ministry taking place here at Gaisley. And I believe it has to widen farther and farther. This ministry that God has given is not to be stagnant. It's to go forward. And what a wonderful privilege it is to see this. One little card, one little invitation. I wonder how many responses out of 20 million homes we would get. I think we'd get so many responses, we'd be hard-pressed to know how to handle them all. What a wonderful um, dilemma that would be. Don't let this project drop. I mean, 50 pence for 100 cards. You think how easy it is to waste 50 pounds, let alone 50 pence today. This is an exciting project. And everyone at least will have an opportunity. Now I know it's going to take more than just printing cards. It means getting them into the homes. But that's where all of us can participate. We come from different parts of the country. What a way to put in a Sunday. What a way to um, spend our vacation. Well, we'll go back, we'll go up to northern Scotland where no one's up there, and then we'll spend our vacation going, putting in these cards. Or we'll go over to northern Wales or across to Ireland or somewhere. Or maybe we'll just stay close by and we'll do it. Isn't this the end of time, brethren and sisters? It's not a time for us to just waste in daydreaming, is it? This is a time to be fully committed to this work. And what you heard this morning was just exciting. But anyway, it goes on to say, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? His church. Till we all come into the unity of the faith. It doesn't say just um, unison or compromise but into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. I don't know how people can miss these texts of Scripture. Perfect man. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth, not a truth, the truth, it's a definite, clear, definitive truth. But speaking the truth how? And I know that's what you, brethren and sisters, are attempting to do. I read all these things about people being so hostile and so divisive. Well, if there are divisive or hostile people amongst you, I'm finding it hard to find you. may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. There are many warnings against deceptions, but the truth is the only answer. Therefore, every day we must study God's word. Every day. And I mean study it, not just glance it. <laughs> must become part of our life. It must be placed in our minds. 
The reason that even those who are faithful are being deceived, or at least a move want to be faithful are being deceived, is because they don't know the word. Now, I have some counsel for you, brethren and sisters, that has been a great blessing for me. Whenever I hear something new, no matter how well it's presented, even how logical it sounds, I ask the Lord to let me not allow my affections to go out to that. That sounds a strange way to say it, doesn't it? But you know, men and women act to new ideas very much like a young man acts to a pretty female face. I'm serious. The differences are not that great. And I'm talking about, of course, the unconverted man wouldn't act this way, but I'm talking about the... I mean, the converted man wouldn't act this way, but the unconverted... Man, they see a pretty girl. And before they know it, their affections have gone out. They don't even know the girl. They've just seen a pretty face or a shapely form. And once they allow their emotions and their feelings and their affections to be tantalized by this girl... It's a very difficult thing to break away from it. They might get to know her and find she's got a bad temper, that she's selfish, that she's egocentric. They can find all sorts of things, but their, their emotions have already gone out. And sometimes they end up making a tragic marriage because they were impulsive. My approach to new presentations, I mean that which is new in terms of the theological insights, is not to reject and not to accept. Now I want you to hear me. We cannot just automatically, as some people seem to do, as soon as they hear something new, say... Well, I've never heard that before. Boom, boom. No, that's not the way for a Christian to respond. But neither can we say, yes, this sounds great. I've never heard this before. Isn't it an exciting new insight? Both can lead to disaster. I want to repeat that. Neither do we accept impulsively or reject impulsively. Servant of the Lord in testimonies to ministers tells us that we are to, I think it's about 107, somewhere in that range, that we must investigate. But I only investigate as far as I'm reading truth. When I come to a clear error, I finish my investigation. I don't continue normally to study it or to try to explore it. 
Now, while ever I'm reading truth, I need to read on. But if I come to something I'm not sure, whether it's truth or error, then I must stop again. And what must I do? Go back to the primary source and discover what, whether it is truth or whether it is error. I'll never forget the way in which Lowell Scarborough came to eventually write that book, The Third Angel's Message of Righteousness by Faith and Its Present Rejection. How many of you remember that book? Few of you do. I tell you, that's a, a fine book. Lowell Scar Scarborough was born in Oklahoma and, and trained as a builder as a young man. With his wife, became a Seventh-day Adventist, very faithful, and they moved to California, up to Northern California, and there they were faithful members of the Paradise Church, and he began to hear what sounded like new material being preached from the pulpit. And Lowell genuinely didn't know whether it was new light that God had promised will continue to flow until the end of time. The light shines more and more. Or whether it was error. But like a good Berean, he went back to the Word and to the spirit of prophecy. And it didn't take him long to realize that this was deadly error. Now just say he had married it. Just say he'd allowed his affections to go out to this new tantalizing material that he was hearing in the pulpit. Of course, you don't necessarily have to hear it in a pulpit. There's much of it going around in lay ministries today. But he did not do that. And in the end, he was burdened because he didn't see people concerned about it in this large church. They were going, hearing it, and it was obvious that they were accepting what they were hearing. And that was one of the main reasons why he wrote that book. So that laymen could at least have the opportunity of seeing the dangers that were there. Come to Second Thessalonians 2. I realise this is talking about the Antichrist power, but I want us to see that it has an impact upon us. Verse 2. Second Thessalonians, verse 2. And then we'll come to verse 3. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Oh, brethren, we've got to be secure. Sisters, we've got to be secure. We can't be shaken about neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand let no man deceive you by any means that's a clear statement isn't it Satan is going to use men and women to deceive us and here is a challenge let no man deceive you by any means And of course, you're familiar with 2 Timothy 4, the final counsel of Paul before his execution, the burden that was on his heart. I want to read it to you again. This was the charge that was given to me, 
there in the Montego Bay Church as I accepted the responsibility of being a minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Can I just um, stop there for a moment? Not only must we preach it, we must live it. Amen. Be instant in season, out of season. You know what that means? Preach the word, teach it, share it, whatever term you want to use, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. When it's easy and when it's not easy. When it's permitted and when it's not permitted. There's never a time to stop sharing this word. There are going to be easy times to share it. There are going to be difficult times. You know if you go door to door you get people either indifferent or maybe rude. But you still keep going. Because you will come to a door where there will be a receptive person. I know people often have told me in England you don't go to a person's door to door. And I know it can be discouraging. And what Russell said this morning about the response being poor at the door to door, I can understand it fully. It's not only in England that happens, but it might be harder here than in some other parts. But just to find that one rough diamond that's ready to listen, it's worth it for all the insults, all the rejections. In fact, as I tell the students at Hartman, one of the first things you've got to learn is to have such confidence and trust in the Lord that you can take rejection, move forward, and still know that God is leading you. They're not rejecting you. You're a stranger to them. They're rejecting the invitation that God has given because you have prayed that the Holy Spirit will minister to their mind. And if they are rejecting you, then you know that they're rejecting the Holy Spirit's um, impact upon their minds. You can understand that. And then it says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now that word doctrine comes up a lot with Paul. He seemed to think it was important. And every true Seventh-day Adventist will realize the centrality of doctrine. You cannot know Jesus without the doctrine. For the time will come when they shall, will not endure sound doctrine. Brethren and sisters, if Paul were writing this today, what do you think he would say? Cool. The time has come. It has come. See, we're right at the very end of time, so we can expect these uh, passages that were future to the day they were written to be fulfilled today. For the time has come when they are not enduring sound doctrine, but after their own lusts are they heaping to themselves, teachers having itching ears, and they are turning away their ears from the truth, the truth again. Notice the word. And it turned unto what? 
Can you imagine that? In this God's remnant church, in this Seventh-day Adventist church, there are those that are saying that the truth is error and that the error is truth. Oh, brothers and sisters, the word of God is the answer. If they speak not according to this, what about it? There's no light in it. I don't know how people can study the word of God and still listen to the fabrications of men. Or think that they must respect the error that men are presenting. We must have no toleration of error. Amen. Now I'm not talking about being tolerant of the one in error. But I'm talking about the error itself. Jesus hates the sin. Yet somehow he can love the sinner. And if we're Christ-like, we will hate the error. We will hate the fabrication, the fables. And yet somehow, by the grace of God, we will love the one who is presenting it. Because Jesus died for that one. Jesus paid an infinite price for his or her salvation. Verse 5 says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Now that comes pretty hard to some of us. <laughs> it's easy to say to someone, do the work of evangelists, but what about me? Yes, all of us are to be evangelists. Maybe not public evangelists. Different ways to evangelize. This is one way to evangelize here, isn't it? Only one, but it's one way. But where to be evangelists? Do the work of an evangelist make full proof of thy ministry? Now, I know the time is late, so I'm going to stop here. I'm just laying the foundation. But this afternoon and this evening, I am going to go forward on the issue of time setting as just one deception of Satan. Deceptions are much stronger for you and for me than it is for the world at large. The very elect are his specific target population. For he hopes to be able to take the truth out of your mind and your heart and your life. So that eventually he can say, the whole world is mine. While ever there is one man or woman on this planet that hold firm to the truth, Jesus can reign supreme. One man or woman. In the days of Job it said there was none like him. One man. None like him. He was unique in his day. God's going to have a lot more than one person in the time. And I believe I'm looking into the eyes of a significant portion 
of those faithful men and women who will be part of that final generation. If we gently go through the word together and we all agree that the word is a final arbiter, then it's going to be easy. Remember this, that the word is clear. It is simple. If you hear anything that's very complicated and complex, it's not the gospel. The gospel isn't meant for theologians, not meant for scholars or academicians. It's meant for everybody. It's written for ordinary human beings. And therefore it will be simple. And so that's the first test that I place on something. If people come to me with very complicated theological, that, that I've got to strain my mind to even be sure I know what they're talking about, I instinctively know it's not a God. The gospel is simple. The truth is straightforward. The principles are understandable by children. If you don't believe it, just try and teach four and five and six-year-olds. They can understand these principles. Like sometimes they seem to understand it better than adults. I don't find it difficult to explain these things to my children. I wish it was as easy to explain it to adults as it is to my children. And my children are just like any other children. They understand it. They may not find it easy to live it like many of us, but they know it. I asked my boy often to articulate. I asked him questions. I asked him questions on righteousness by faith. Nigel, can you live a righteous life? No. Well, how then do you live a righteous Well, Jesus, you know, I've, you've got to get the children coming back with the answer so they at least know it. They'll never live it if they don't know it. Yes. Because you're saying spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. There has to be that full commitment. That's right. Full commitment to Christ, that spiritual discernment. But when you have that, it's very simple. Yeah. Yes, when that's you don't have it, and even some of us in our Christian experience, I think, you know, it's easy to say that, but I know that I'm continually being graced by the Holy Spirit. It's yes. not something that happens to you overnight. I mean, so the simple, what you say is right. The gospel is simple, but we, um, it's a never-ending process of commitment, isn't it? Yes, and it is contrary to the natural man. Right. That's the issue. Well, brothers and sisters, I want us here today to just take hold of this word.
May it truly be a lamp and a light to each one of us. And as we go through my burden on this time setting, and as I look at the efforts to time set down through the 1850s and in the 1890s, and the way Ellen White responded to those time-setting efforts and how closely they parallel what is taking place today in the Adventist Church. I hope that we'll all be able to come to a unity of our understanding of this. May God bless you all. Thank you, Pastor Standish. I think we can all say, hitherto hath the Lord led us, and he surely will lead us farther forward. With that in mind, shall we sing at our closing hymn, number 299, Onward Christian Soldiers, 299.
Thank you, Lord, for the words of Jesus. Let no man deceive you. Words of warning. But thank you, too, for his words of encouragement and victory. Amen. He that overcometh, even as I overcame, shall be with me in my, th in my throne. Even as I overcame and am seated with my Father in his throne. O oh Lord, give us grace to see clearly the way that Jesus is leading each step and give us grace to follow. Keep us now, we pray. Bless us as we continue together this Sabbath day for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.